Welcome to Ring of Fire. I'm Sam Cedar. Today on Ring of Fire, Dave Johnson from the Campaign for America's Future will give us a primer on the Democratic presidential candidate's approaches towards regulating the banks. Wood Taft will tell us how the state of Ohio is moving closer to legalizing marijuana. And Jeb Bush may have destroyed the Bush name for the rest of his family. We'll tell you how later in the program. Keep up with the latest progressive news on our website at ringoffireradio.com. And you can watch Ring of Fire Monday through Friday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on Free Speech TV. And, of course, on our live stream on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash go left. And you can also subscribe to our podcast five days a week at new Ring of Fire episodes. Just go to rofpodcast.com. get things started today with the ring of fire news of the week biggest stories from progressive media that you may have missed joining me for this week's discussion is farron cousins editor of the trial lawyer magazine so farron of course uh, like we've been saying there's a, a tremendous amount of news to cover this week and um i guess we should start with uh one guy who we're probably not going to hear so much about in the future And I'm talking about Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden announced this week after what uh, really seemed uh, an extended period of of questioning that he would not be running for the Democratic nomination for the presidency uh, in 2016. And he went out. um, it, It was clear that he was really flirting with it for quite some time. And he went out with some criticism for Hillary Clinton and some of which I um, agree with and some of which I think is uh, sort of shockingly, um, well, naive and and ridiculous. I mean, he um, on one hand, he did say that um, or at least implied that uh, the next Democrat should not be so hawkish on uh, on various military conflicts, which uh, I think many people took to be uh, directly at um, uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, But the other thing he said, Farron, was that he said um, he uh, thinks that it's time to end divisive politics and we shouldn't look at Republicans as our enemies. That was a a joke that she made during the the debate. But he said he's been accused of being uh, uh, of being naive because he thinks it's possible to uh, work with Republicans. And he says that compromise is not a dirty word. But Farron, you and I know that to Republicans, compromise is a dirty word. You know that because we can look at polls which say that Republicans perceive compromise as a dirty word. We know that because the people who sit atop the uh, presidential primary in the Republican Party are are, are there because they are uncompromising. And we also know that it is naive to think that they could negotiate with Republicans. In fact, some of President Obama's top advisors have said we were naive when we thought we could negotiate with Republicans and we changed our tact. I mean, what century is Joe Biden living in? Republicans have always been that way, mostly since Obama took office. We're dealing with a Congress right now that has the record of being the most obstructionist in history. They have blocked more bills out of spite than 
any other Congress we have ever had in this country. And, you know, this whole idea that we can compromise with them, they can't even compromise with themselves anymore. Yes. They're fighting so deeply amongst one another. Why would a Democrat think that, hey, I can go in there and, and, and tame these people and make an agreement with these people who can't make an agreement with the guy that they agree with? It's it's insanity what's happening in the Republican Party, and it's it's even more insanity for a Democrat to think that they can work with with children like this. And you know, uh, Farron, you make a great point, and we're going to get to um, that uh, that part of the news in, in a bit that is involving the the Speaker of the House. But you make a great point. I mean, they can uh, they can't even compromise with themselves. Uh, never mind with the Democrats. And it also, I mean, let's let's be honest here. I mean, this is not just a question of like of imploring people to bring a a knife to a gunfight. Um, he is, you know, the point of our politics uh, is not for uh, everyone to get along. In, fra- in fact, I think we should make this clear to people. If everyone got, uh, if there was no conflict over politics uh, in this country, uh, I would imagine that um, we would see uh, really no change whatsoever. And uh, and more often than not, when we hear of the political parties getting together and compromising or being bipartisan, it's for something like the TPP. I mean, frankly, when the American public hears bipartisanship, they should hang on to their wallets (laughs) because that means that the establishment and the elite have gotten together and said, we've all been able to agree that this is going to help us and we can fleece the American public in some way. That's what we saw with TPP. Uh, That's what the negotiations got. And let's also remember, right, that it was Joe Biden who went behind Harry Reid's back in 2011 when when Harry Reid was going head to head with McConnell over the debt ceiling. Uh, and the the fiscal cliff. And it was Joe Biden who stepped in and basically uh, sabotaged uh, Harry Reid's strategy, capitulated to the Republicans. And what did that get us? We know what it got us. It got us more Republican obstructionism. It got more brinksmanship. And it was only when the Obama administration said, hey, guess what? We're not going to play this game with you. Uh, We're done. Uh, That's when basically things started working again. So when we get to this debt ceiling crisis in the next couple of weeks, and uh, it's impossible to know, and we're going to talk in the next segment about Paul Ryan uh, and uh, his maybe speakership, and if he gets it even for how long it lasts. But uh, the reason why we're dealing with this brinksmanship, the reason why the full credit and faith of the United States is uh, being threatened by the Republican Party is because of what Joe Biden did back in 2011 when he basically said to the Republicans, look, you're hostage taking, you're uh, you're acting like children, you're really, I mean, in many respects, deceitful um, uh, attempt to sabotage uh, just our our good faith and credit. It it was successful at least partially successful. So and and you got to remember, right, it's not just in uh, the successes measured, not just in the compromises they got from uh, Biden, but it was successful insofar as they were able to go back and continue 
to uh, sort of grow this Frankenstein uh, monster that exists on the right by going back and saying to him, like, look, this is this is what happens uh, when we push it. This is what happens when we threaten uh, the not to pay our bills. Good things accrue and you get more of it. But listen, uh, Farron, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about what you just raised, which is the Republicans can't even agree upon their Speaker of the House or to the extent that they have. Uh, it is only because Paul Ryan is quietly and uh, subtly caving here to these extreme elements again. And then, of course, we also have to talk about um, the uh, the flop that was the Benghazi hearings. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Sam Cedar here with Farron Cousins. Now let's get back to our discussion of the Ring of Fire News of the Week. So, Farron, of course, uh, this week we also had in the news, it wasn't just about Joe Biden saying he's not running. It was also about Paul Ryan saying he sort of is running, running for the Speaker of the House. Now, this is the way I see it, Farron, right? We start off the week where Paul Ryan... And and I think you and I have mentioned this in the past. I mean, where are the people who have criticized President Obama's leadership? This is a time where our government is in crisis because the Republican Party can't get their act together to choose a Speaker of the House. It's the third most uh, powerful position in the country, right? Third in line for the presidency. And uh, Paul Ryan is dithering back and forth as to whether or not he's going to take this. So at the beginning of the week, he comes out and he says, look, uh, I will take it, but under certain conditions. This is basically uh, tantamount to a guy coming on saying, like, I want to marry you. I'm willing to get married with you. I want to marry you, but uh, I need you to sign this prenup. And if you don't sign the prenup, I'm not going to marry you. And this prenup says all sorts of things like you can't divorce me. Uh, I can divorce you, but you can't divorce me. And um uh, you can't criticize me and I don't have to do any of the dishes in the house <laughs> and uh, and and so on. And so go ahead. Well, the, the funniest thing to me about Ryan saying that I will run if was he said, I have to know all 10 of these conservative caucuses have to come out and formally endorse me mm-hmm. before I throw my name out there, which is basically saying, you prove to me that I have no chance of losing this and I will absolutely run. I mean, the poor guy is is still shaking from what happened in 2012. I, I mean, he, he's so terrified of losing. But this was this was the opportunity for for any Republican, uh, crazy or not. They saw a leadership void in their party. Somebody could have stepped up and said, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to unify this party. And they didn't even have that. I mean, they don't have anybody with the scruples to stand up and say, you know what? I can handle this. I'm going to take over. That's sad. Yeah. And and the amazing thing is, is that Paul Ryan made such a show of it on, uh, you know, this is and to use a gym metaphor. Right. Because Paul Ryan loves to work out all the time. <laughs> he's strutting around bragging about how he's going to bench press, uh, you know, 300 pounds. 
Uh, but when push came to shove, he basically said, well, I don't feel like bench press 300 right now. I can, but uh, I'm just going to do, I'm going to do one curl with a 15 pound weight <laughs> is basically what it, what it turned out because uh, the Republicans went behind closed doors, the, the so-called freedom caucus. And I don't even know what that means. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure that's not a surprise to uh, the conservatives out there. Uh, but I, I guess that's the caucus that's in charge of naming all the um, French related things, right? Like the Freedom Fries and uh, Freedom Toast. I guess, uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, freedom Mustard, those type of things. But um, they came out and they said, well, you know, you wanted a, an endorsement, official endorsement. We're not giving you one. A lot of the people in our caucus are going to vote for you, but we're not giving you one of the major things you wanted, which was that uh, endorsement. And as far as the other things, now we're not going to agree. And Paul Ryan pretends like they didn't say it. So basically what we have is Paul Ryan coming out going, I'll marry you. Just need you to sign this uh, prenup. If you're not going to sign it, I'm walking away. And his bride says, yeah, I'll marry you too, but I'm not going to sign the prenup. And... Paul Ryan just pretends like he didn't hear it. And he said, great. Well, what, you know, what, what should we serve for cake at the wedding? And so this is a guy who's going in already incredibly weak. And he is pretending like he wasn't bent. But look, they, those members of the Freedom Caucus, they know they have Paul Ryan wrapped around their finger. And Paul Ryan, he can pretend to the rest of America, but he can't pretend to his own caucus. They know they own him. And uh, so it should be interesting to see what, what, what happens. It goes forward. I mean, by all accounts, it appears like he's going to, um, you know, be the speaker. But, uh, it, you know, they could elect him and then five minutes later say, guess what? We're tired of you, man. <laughs> Uh, and so uh, it, it should be interesting. I think we have now seen basically the end of Paul Ryan's career, uh, yeah. to be honest with you, because this is where it ends for him. He's going to be the speaker, uh, I think, for a, not a terribly long period of time. And then, you know, where do you go from that? He goes to K Street and he becomes a lobbyist. Now, uh, we don't we just have a, a couple minutes here, but we need to touch on. Uh, the the hearings that barely were, um, you know, the, these Benghazi hearings were hyped and hyped and hyped. The best the Republicans could do would come out with stacks of printed out emails and showing that one stack is bigger than another stack. And um, Hillary Clinton basically just, uh, you know, she 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 stood in the face of these jokers and. Uh, I don't think they got what they want out of this. In fact, Trey Gowdy had to start the committee by spending five minutes explaining why the committee had to exist five <laughs> years later. Yeah, listening to Gowdy when he was talking there, I mean, he he would get so angry. And I, I think it was mostly frustration with himself because mm. he doesn't know where he's going. He he started off on this road trip. He doesn't have a map. He doesn't know directions, but he's, he, damn it, he's driving that car and, and, and somebody's got to tell him where to go And he's because he's getting mad. And it it was so funny. I mean, Hillary Clinton, just every every question, every thought, everything they threw at her, she just smacked it back at them. And it was brilliant. I mean, this I talked to Eric Bollert from Media Matters earlier this week, and we discussed the fact that these hearings are going to backfire so hard on the Republicans, yeah. just like it did when they impeached Bill Clinton. Well, guess what? He left a, a office with an approval rating, I think it was the third highest in U.S. history. 
And Hillary Clinton is going to come out of this looking fantastic, and the Demo- uh, uh, Republicans, excuse me, are going to look like even bigger fools than they currently do. Right. I mean, this was uh, supposed to be the culmination. But I think, you know, Farron, I think you're a- exactly right. And I think you've really hit the, um, the, the, the nail on the head here with what, wh- why this has been going nowhere is because the Republicans don't even have a theory about what this scandal is supposedly about, right? I mean, it's not, they can't even, they just, all they seem to can talk about is like, why did Susan Rice come out and say it was about a video and then later it wasn't about a video? The problem that these guys have is there's no there there. Yeah. It was a horrible tragedy uh, and it, uh, could not have been prevented, as far as I can tell, unless you told Ambassador Stevens you can't do what you want to do, which is to go on the ground and try and uh, you know build relationships with Libyans, which was never going to happen. And so um, the Republicans are stuck. But Farron, we're out of time. Uh, more news in the next hour. Coming up, joining us by phone, my co-host on Ring of Fire, Bobby Kennedy, on his cousin Patrick Kennedy's new book. Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Sam Cedar here with Bobby Kennedy. So, Bobby, we have you by phone now. And your cousin, former Congressman Patrick Kennedy, he was on 60 Minutes to talk about his book, which is has been released and in conjunction with a push that he's making to get some legislation passed in Washington. One of the things that I've noticed in the coverage of the book has been that Supposedly, Patrick's family, the Kennedys, are are mad at Patrick because he has somehow crossed a boundary by talking about things that were supposed to be private within the family, supposedly. And I wanted to just get your reaction on that. Well, there's 100 people in my family, Sam, so I, I think people are going to have different reactions to Patrick's book. I am personally really proud of Patrick. I think what he's doing is consistent with everything that my family stood for. He's fighting for an issue that he's passionate about, which is civil rights for people with mental illnesses. And he's trying to bring those people into America's democratic fold. He particularly wants to make sure that they feel confident to be out in the open and to be able to fight for their rights against an insurance industry that uses the secretiveness, the the embarrassment, the shame, the stigma of mental illnesses to deny them compensation for their health care. In many cases, they are legally entitled to that compensation, but the insurers seldom pay it since they're confident that they can use the stigma to force people with mental illnesses to stand down. And Patrick is standing up for them. You know, Patrick recounts his personal journey in his book, and my family's known for its allergy toward talking about personal issues in public. 
it's not because of some code of omerta. It, it originated with the older generation, particularly with my grandmother, who just thought it was self-indulgent and tasteless for people to talk about their personal affairs. She, she used to always tell us, don't talk about yourselves, talk about your issues. And that ethic has been imbued in my family for generations. And it was regarded as, when I was growing up, as narcissistic to talk about your own personal problems. You can argue whether there's any merit in that approach or whether it's healthy or unhealthy or whatever, but that was part of our family ethic. And I think it was reinforced in my generation by the consciousness that our family stood for certain things and that those things were often unpopular, particularly at the power centers with the press and with powerful corporations and with the ideological right. And, you know, there's a large presence of right-wing ideology in the media that has a fierce antipathy toward my family and for all the things we stand for. And they know that gossip sells more papers and draws more eyeballs and serious discussion of issues. So gossip about my family fits both their political agenda and their financial agenda. So by attacking us personally or reporting lurid gossip or our political opponents could discredit our issues and make money for themselves. So any piece of personal gossip, whether it was true or not, became fodder to discredit our issues and drive circulation and advertising revenues. So naturally, there was a guardedness in, in my generation. But having said that, that guardedness among my family, when we're out in the political world, doesn't extend to our relationships with friends and family. In private, I think there's a tremendous openness within our family and within our large army of close, trusted friends. It seems to me that that part of that silence about not speaking about issues within the family also sort of extended to some measure of a sense of responsibility, particularly when it came to Teddy dealing with the assassination of his brothers, your your uncle and your father. I mean, it seems like there was a tremendous amount of pressure on him. And I imagine, and I guess this is what I'm asking you, if that extends to the family insofar as that we've got to put on a face for people, not just the, the rest of the family, but really, I mean, in many respects to the country, because, you know, your family have been seminal figures in the uh, modern history of the United States. Well, it's a combination of things. Teddy was, you know, utterly crushed by my father's assassination, and he'd already been devastated by the deaths of my Uncle Jack and his elder brother Joe and my grandfather's debilitating stroke. His three elder brothers had all died in the service of their country, and all of them died violently. And he was traumatized. Patrick's notion, you know, that he says that Teddy suffered post-traumatic stress disorder and that he was self-medicating with alcohol. And, you know, I think that's plausible. Teddy had a hard time talking about anything to do with his brother's death or with my cousin John's, which totally shattered his heart. Um, I did succeed in, on one occasion in getting him to talk about the Warren Commission report, but it was, it was an agonizing discussion. And he just had a visceral unwillingness. He would wince, his eyes would tear up, and... He, he was, till the end of his life, he was profoundly and dramatically affected, almost as if it was day one. And, and he never got over that. 
Teddy, you know, was by nature, he was conservative, and that's ironic, but he was conservative, and he was a traditional, pious Catholic. He went to confession. He talked to his priest. He had a very strong relationship with an Irish priest named Father Jerry Creedon and with a number of other priests with whom he felt comfortable talking about personal stuff. My generation grew up, I think, more comfortable talking about very intimate things in other settings. Um, but Teddy, you know, Teddy really was a product of, of the old school. And also, there was an ethic in my family that we didn't have much right to complain about anything because we were so lucky in so many ways. We had wealth, we had education, we had wonderful friends, we had a supportive family. There were kids in Harlem and Watts and other parts of the country who lost their fathers to gun violence every day, and they didn't have the support system. They didn't have the resources that we did. My mother always told us, everybody takes their licks, and you know, life is hard for everybody, and it's easier on balance for us than it is for most of the people on the planet. And, you know, that was, I think that was a, an important perspective, and, it was, and it, it was a perspective that made it easy to stay grateful. And, you know, and there was also this thing against complaining. Any kind of complaining or self-pity was definitely discouraged in our family. My grandfather, Joseph Kennedy, would clap his hands and say, no whining in this house, no long faces. And I don't think that's that bad. You know, there's a there's kind of a peril to dwelling too much in the past, um, and I think the the feeling was, you know, you can look but don't stare. Um, if you dwell too long in your injuries or your troubles or your tragedies, you can get stuck there. It's like swallowing poison in oil. You have to move forward. We all ultimately have to move forward, and we have to create our own lives, our own narratives. I don't think it was necessarily an unhealthy impulse not to dwell too much on those tragedies. My aunt Eunice, Eunice Shriver, she'd often tell us that she'd say there are too many important things going on right now to be worried about yourself. There's too many problems that can actually be solved. There's too many problems that you have the ability to be effective in solving. And my own experience was that I had a much greater comfort talking about the assassinations among some members of our generation and, and a lot with my children than my Uncle Teddy or my father's other siblings ever did during their lives. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Ring of Fire Radio. Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Sam Cedar here with Bobby Kennedy. So, Bobby, when we broke, we were talking about the reports that supposedly there are members of your family who are upset with Patrick Kennedy for airing his problems that he has had over the years. And uh, frankly, for also talking about his relationship with his dad and his attempts to intervene with his father's drinking, which he certainly says uh, was a problem. And I know that there have been reports that there are members of your family that um, are upset about that. There's some question as to will this mar in any way uh, Ted Kennedy's legacy? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? 
I don't think so. I don't think people in our family will be overly upset or in any event. I, I don't think that they're going to stay upset for, for too long with Patrick. Everybody loves Patrick. All of us admire what he's doing. I certainly think that he's got tremendous courage, and I respect him for that. His experience with his father and his expectations from that relationship, I think, were, were different, maybe really very different than the rest of us. Patrick talks about an intervention that he participated in with Teddy, where, where Teddy walked out. But, you know, many of us participated in interventions that year with, with Uncle Teddy. And more than a dozen of us from two generations were involved in various coordinated in, interventions that year. My own experience was a very good one with Teddy. I flew to Washington. I talked to him for probably for a long time, over an hour in his office, and he responded very positively, and he was both grateful and gracious. In the end, I think it was a combination of all those interventions and his subsequent marriage to Vicky that really helped to change the way that he interacted with the world and the way that he used alcohol. He never stopped, you know, of course, everybody was urging total abstinence, um, and he never made it to that point, but he moderated his drinking so that after 1992, it was no longer causing serious problems in his life. I think everybody in my generation at various times had had some anger at Teddy, but over time, I think we all forgave him. We knew... We especially knew that he'd been crushed by my father's death and by the death of his three older brothers. He was left raising 20 fatherless children, my 11 brothers and sisters, John Kennedy's two kids, Peter Lawford's four children, plus three of his own. And he never missed our birthdays. He attended all of our weddings. He was at every graduation. He returned every phone call, usually within the hour. It was really extraordinary to me how hard he tried, how reliable he was as a, as a surrogate father. I have literally hundreds of letters from my Uncle Teddy. When he traveled, he sent these funny postcards. He sent reminders on, on commemorative anniversaries for our family and for our country. He would write congratulatory notes whenever I published an op-ed in the New York Times or some other paper. He would take those publications and have them reprinted in the congressional record to show that he was proud of me. He wasn't just doing this for us, for me and my brothers and sisters and my cousins. He was doing it for our in-laws. And he was doing it for distant friends and for relatives and for, for literally hundreds of people across the state and across the country. He called or visited every Gold Star family in the state of Massachusetts, every family that lost a child in war. And he, of course, was a Gold Star child himself because his brother died in World War II. He called or he visited 140 Massachusetts families who lost loved ones in World Trade Center attacks, and he wouldn't just make a call and that would be it. He would follow up, oftentimes, many, many times over the years. Every Tuesday, he quietly drove to inner city Washington, D.C. to read to public school children. Ken Burns, the, the documentary filmmaker, told me that he met a little girl from southeast Washington who never knew that for three years the senator who read, the, the man who read to her every Tuesday was a United States senator. Oh, and his staff didn't even know that he was doing that. At his, you know, when we had his funeral, 20,000 people appeared spontaneously at his wake. 
And I took my six children out to shake their hands, and we spent the evening out on that line, and they were immigrants for whom he'd gotten a green card. They were soldiers who he'd helped in the, into the VA. They were senior citizens who who he'd helped get their Social Security. Um, I remember one man was the father of an illegal Costa Rican immigrant had died fighting for the United States Marines in Iraq, and Teddy had arranged for his burial at Arlington. And then, you know, he did all that personal stuff. Then he was also doing his full-time job as senator. His, his fingerprints are on over a thousand bills. He's probably the most productive senator in the history of the United States Senate. You know, all of the social issues that we care about, Sam, about Medicaid, Medicare, school lunch, you know, think about them, senior citizens, housing, education, American Indians, migrant workers, civil rights, voting rights, minimum wage, gay rights. He was the Senate leader on all of those, on health care and AIDS research, on religious freedom, you know, a million other things, immigration, arms control, gun control. He led the battles in the Senate against torture during the Bush administration, up against eavesdropping, against apartheid during Reagan's administration, and against Reagan's Central American wars, and and against both wars in Iraq. You go down the issues, Sam, that you care about, and the principal legislation almost always was certainly drafted by Ted Kennedy. We knew what he was doing. And we also had a special consciousness of the burden that he was carrying around with him. And that, I think, made it easier for us to forgive him for some of his for his excesses, for, for which he was famous, particularly in the two decades after my father's death, at a time when he was really suffering. Lastly, Bobby, give us a sense of, um, of Patrick's legislation. How, how big of a deal do you think this is? You know, I think that's exactly why most people in my family will end up really applauding Patrick. He's a serious person. He's smart. He knows what he's talking about. And and this is a critical issue that no one else is championing. The media tends to highlight the gossipy aspects of the book and to ignore its much more serious purpose. And I think it's clear that he made these personal disclosures to advance an issue about which he's really passionate. And that's the issue of people of mental illness. And it's really the last frontier, Sam, for for civil rights in this country. It's consistent with all the things that my family has done over the generations in terms of reaching out and forcing forcing our American democracy to be more inclusive. My family was at the forefront of the civil rights movement during the 1960s and during during the White House years. And then after Jack's assassination, Teddy's first bill was the Voting Rights Act of 1964, which he helped usher through the Senate in the wake of my Uncle Jack's death. My father became champion for migrant farm workers who were completely excluded from protection by the American labor laws since the 1930s. My father championed their plight um, and that of the American Indians and the people of Appalachia and the, and the Mississippi Delta, all of these forgotten Americans who had been you know, left behind by our political system. The Kennedys and the Shrivers were the spear tip and the spear shaft in the civil rights movement for intellectually disabled people. My Aunt Eunice created Special Olympics, and Anthony Shriver, her son, created Best Buddies. The JPK Foundation, which he ran, 
forced Americans to stop warehousing people with intellectual disabilities and to bring them into the mainstream. And, you know, we fought to bring them out of the darkness of shame and give them full citizenship. And that was probably, arguably, one of the most important civil rights movements in world history. So, you know, I think the last frontier of all those battles and the last barrier is for people who have mental illnesses. Under the law, people with mental illnesses generally are entitled to health insurance. They're entitled to treatment in hospitals, but the, but the insurance companies systematically deny that, and they deny them coverage, believing that you know, they'll be too ashamed and, or too embarrassed or too fragile to stand up for themselves. And Patrick's effort is to say, we are coming out of the darkness. People who have these illnesses have a right to treatment. They are our brothers. They are our sisters. We need to take care of them as Americans. We can't advance our country by leaving our poor brothers and sisters behind or the vulnerable behind. And Patrick has stood up to say, I have this illness myself. He's giving other people the courage to do the same. And I think he needed to start that journey by telling his own story of mental illness. And I think it's noble and it's heroic. And, you know, I have nothing, Sam, but admiration for him. Bobby Kennedy, really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Sam. We'll pick up with more news at the top of the next hour. And don't forget that you can always get the news that the corporate-controlled media refuses to cover on our website, ringoffireradio.com. I'm Mike Papantonio, and you've been listening to a free sample of Ring of Fire Radio. If you'd like to listen to the full show, subscribe to our weekly podcast on our website at ringoffireradio.com. It's your support that helps keep us on the air.